Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World, we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine assisted field. This can be psychological, this can be neuropsych, this can be physical, this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines, these beautiful horses that we work with, help us with. Thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Equine Assisted World, um, where we talk to people at the cutting edge of this, uh, can't really even call it an industry, this um, practice, this service, this uh, way of looking at the world of how horses interact with humans and make them feel better, basically. We look at it from the horse angle, we look at it from the human angle, we look at it from the body angle, we look at it from the nervous system angle, and we look at it from the brain angle. And for those of you who know a little bit about the approach with our own methods, horse boy method, movement method, and so on, you'll know it's very neuroscience-based, it's very brain-based. But we're not neuroscientists. We just stumbled into something that we had explained to us why it was working by neuroscientists. It's relatively rare that we get an actual neuroscientist here in front of us. So they tend to sit in special neuroscientist kennels in universities and you don't really get access to them. You have to go through all sorts of wire and locked gates and things like that. But we managed to break one out of, of, the, of the ivory tower and bring it to you guys to, uh, to listen. So we were very, very lucky. We've got Dr. Stephen Peters here, who's, who's a unique individual in many, many ways, because not only is he a brain scientist and a doctor, and, but he also is, has autism and he's also a very accomplished horseman and has been working in the field of equine assisted stuff in general, as well as horsemanship in general for many, many years. And so he's in a unique position to really enlighten us on a lot of things that a lot of us wonder about, because let's face it, when you're working with a human or whether you're working with a horse, if you're working with any sentient being, pretty much, you're working with the brain. That's what you're working with. You might want your horse to do a half pass, but first you've got to access the brain. You might want this client or service user that you're working with to do, to participate in, a, in, a, in an activity that is going to have a beneficial effect. Well, that's only going to happen if you can reach the brain. Yet the brain is the thing that we are taught the least about in most of our training, whether we are teachers, whether we're therapists, whether we're even, you know, people in the medical field, they don't get an awful lot of brain science unless they go looking for it. So we went looking for it. And here we have Dr. Stephen Peters. So Dr. Peters, Dr. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Who are you? Tell us who you are. Well, Rupert, I'm glad to be a part of your, your program here. I am a neuroscientist, and I'm glad you brought that whole idea up about neuroscientists coming out of the, their ivory tower. In fact, um, that sort of drove me in my, in my horse work. I was a human neuroscientist, and I assessed brain functioning and ran memory clinics and a clinic for brain health, big hospital-based clinics, but I always had courses. And so I always looked at them from that neurological vantage point. You know, every mammal has a, a nervous system and that's what we communicate with. 
I guess a big frustration was talking to people in the horse world who assumed that horses perceived the world as we do. And if you just stop for a second and think, you know, the, the shape of their pupil, the sounds that they bring in, the mechanoreceptors in their skin, they can't perceive a world that we perceive, but we use the human brain as a, as a standard to compare the horse to. So people would say crazy things that horse is stubborn. It knows better. It's disrespectful. You know, when a horse was simply being a horse and the person lacked the communication skills to connect with the horse and understand that language with the horse. So I, I wanted to find somebody who saw horses, enough horses, that would give me some good data. You can't do anything in science with small numbers. So I'd look through the peer-reviewed literature and I'd see maybe six horses and they were all Pasifinos and they were all in a stable and they were all receiving the same food, you know, green, et cetera. And, and you can't generalize from that sample out into the world of, of horses, but you'd see research that would, would seem to indicate that that was the case. So I got frustrated even with the science side of things. So Martin Black, for those who don't know, is a fifth generation cowboy and has spent his lifetime working with horses, as has his family. In fact, Martin's family had supplied horses for almost every war that the United States has fought right up to World War II. So Martin, when he was a teenager, wanted to earn extra money. So he developed a contract colt starting business and was starting 500 colts a year as a teenager. So Martin has seen his empirical data, his, what he's observed again and again was invaluable, huge numbers. So he and I got together. I provided the science. I would say things like, do horses, you ever see horses do this in this situation? And he'd say, yeah, it took me about a thousand horses before I saw that. How the hell do you know that? I said, I only know that because I understand how the brain works. And so it was both of us putting the puzzle pieces together, his empirical data, my scientific data, and we wrote a book, Evidence-Based Horsemanship. And then that sent me off. I had no idea that this would catch on. I, I w- was planning on, on a retirement with my dogs and my horses and a quiet, contemplative, artistic life, painting and drawing and doing those things. And that has not been the case. You know, I've been asked first off by scientific groups, but then the lay public. And I've found that people want to connect and understand their horses and understand the reactions that they get with their horses and understand how it's two nervous systems coming together, the human and the horse, that the interaction is so important. So these programs follow steps A, B, C, and D are just so rigid and sometimes crazy. You know, so I'd ask people, why does your horse do that? Well, they're a right brain introverted Sagittarius. I have all these charts and graphs that I spent money for to show me this. So for me, it just seemed so far out there and, and so confusing to the public. And if it's confusing to the public, whatever they present is going to be confusing to the horse. And 
you know, I really felt the horse was getting a disservice. So I've sort of been on this mission of providing information about the horse's nervous system. And what we do, we do brain dissections and I show people all the connections with a horse, which can be quite profound for somebody to hold an organ that controls, like, like you said, Rupert, everything that that horse perceives and does and learns, you know, if it kicks, it bucks, it bolts, it grazes, has to be processed through the, the brain and the nervous system. So understanding what's under the hood it is a really a key step in understanding the horse as a, as a whole in a different level, a whole different level than just making the horse do things. Here's a question. I want to ask you a bunch of things from this, but something that comes up immediately is, I think it is true to say that you can generalize some aspects of horse training. Otherwise, people would not ever have been able to train horses, including Martin Black would not have been able to start all these cults, nor his family, you know, for the army, etc. However, I think, yes, it's certainly true that even if we get horses to do things, we misunderstand their motives, their reactions, their, it's hard for us to, to judge their well-being outside of their physical well-being. The first question that arises is, if it's so flawed, traditionally, how we've been approaching horses and horse training, just going to play devil's advocate for a moment. Why is it being sure. so effective? Because we've done, we've, we've done amazing things with horses over the centuries, without a doubt. W what's, the, what's the disconnect? What's, what's wrong? Let me ask you, do you really think we've been that effective? It's a good question. Here would, would be my argument is that, mm. you know, horses are, are, you can make them do things. Mm -hmm. And you can turn them into robotic animals, actually, and lose that, that connection so you don't have a communication. For example, if you're starting a cult, and, and this is what Martin and I have, have come upon, if you're starting a cult, you can be really clear in your communication if they're in the right mental framework in order to understand what you're asking. Or you can force them where they're sympathetically aroused to go through emotion. But what you're leaving your horse with, like a human, to learn, we all need safety. We have to feel safe. We have to have a motivation to learn. So we have to have a way to tap into dopamine. And we have to have attention. Oftentimes when you're getting out of after your horse or trained to discipline them, you lose their attention. They check out on you. Or if you have their attention, they're not feeling safe if you're forcing them to do something. So you end up with neuronal bits and fragments that the horse has to try to struggle to put together because they're not in the right neurochemical state. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a noise to signal ratio problem. If you've got lots of noise in their nervous system, and they've got to hunt for that signal. And they may or may not find it. And then you have to, if you have to punish them in order to make them search even harder, yes, you can make them learn to do something, but they may be just reacting out of fear. And that may be rote memorization that they, they come to from constant drilling. 
And if you looked at the brain that was constantly drilled, you find these rigid, rigid neuronal connections because brains are live wired as they're based on our experience. After you and I have this talk, if we've stimulated each other's brains, there will be different connections in our neural network and we will actually be different people than we were tomorrow than we are today based on right. so in other words if if we can find that optimum neurochemical mix where the horse feels safe where the signal no matter how subtle is understood because we've reduced the noise and the noise being excess pressure and the horse can find where that pressure is and have an internal locus of control they can find their way out the other side so they're under pressure, we take the pressure away, they recognize that, and then they learn that they can get there on their own, that if feeling stressed, they can find that safe zone, then horses become like what Martin calls special forces horses. Those horses can sort things out and they have a brain full of dendrites. You take the horse out of the arena, brain full it's of never what, been Go ahead. You said uh, they have a brain, special forces horses with a brain full of dandrites, did you say? Then dendrites. Dendrites. Neurons. What are dendrites? dendrites. Tell, us, tell us what dendrites are. Dendrites are little branches off of axons that, that branch out, arbor out, arborization. And so like they a tree. Many, like a tree. Many, many branches. If we do rote memorization, rote training, drilling, we have a horse that's never left the arena. You'll have a lot of dendrites. Well, you won't have many dendrites. Actually, they'll be pruned back and you'll have very rigid neuronal connections. If you then take that horse out for a trail ride, they may come completely apart because they haven't built up enough options. And, but a horse that's been allowed to explore, a horse that's been understood and feels safe, you know, it takes very, it takes a lot to get those horses feeling threatened because they can find a way out. They can resort to other behaviors and those horses get us out of trouble. Yeah. You know, sometimes when we're too dumb to know we've got ourselves in trouble, the horse can do that because it's got all these branches in their, in their brain connections. So I would argue with you that have we really been effective? No, it's, well, it's, well, in uh, certain, in certain, well, you, you're giving me in, it's interesting pause for thought because I, I think in some, in some areas, yes, we have. And it's a question then of this thing about dendrites, for example, that allows a layman like me to identify why it might have worked so well in this area or this discipline or this environment and not so well in this other one. So I, I'm absolutely with you on this. So for example, I grew up very much with fox hunting. And fox hunting in the UK is you, you rely on your horse 100% because the fences are, can be ridiculously big that it's not a competition. They're not, it's not, nothing is prepared. It goes on all day and you trust your horse's judgment completely to get you out of trouble. You might end up crossing the freeway and then swimming a river and then da -da -da. it's very like going to war on a horse in, in, in a funny way. And if the horse isn't into it and doesn't dig it, there's, there's just no way you're going to get killed. Uh, but the, the way in which those horses were produced by those old school horsemen that I and women that I grew up around was all about 
helping the horse to find its way. And there was, there, there was a very naturalistic aspect to it in that it was all done socially. You always did it with mentor horses as the horse was coming up until the point that the horse sort of graduated and became this meta horse. And then later I trained with a lot with bullfighting, mounted bullfighting people down in Portugal who, whether or not one agrees with bullfighting is sort of a completely by the by. The horsemanship, I don't bullfight. I'm just interested in the horsemanship. The horsemanship is, is bananas because the horse has to go in there and make all the decisions basically and go and like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go. And if there's a moment of, well, I don't really think so, or I'm scared, or I just don't want to, you're dead in two seconds because that bull is very intelligent. He knows how to get you up against the, the, the boards and, and skewer you. And I noticed with those horses that they were joyful and humorous and full of character, full of life, even though they were effective, they were non-robotic dressage horses. And then I, I took a lot of that training over to what we do with horse boy, bits of the fox hunting training and bits of that bullfighting training. And what I noticed was that you, you, your horse's brain seemed to change in front of you. They seemed to go from, cause we'd often get donation horses, which would come out of all sorts of backgrounds who'd arrive going, what's going on. And they would become within some months of this training where they're crossing the center line of their body a lot, but it's, it's also a lot of outdoor time, a lot of social time, a lot of all these other things. And you end up with these horses that absolutely look after you and show up as a professional. This dendrite thing is very interesting to me because is it, this is the question now, is it that in certain effective areas of horsemanship where we, we as a culture have achieved great things with horses, is it because we've done it in those environments where the horse's brain can develop in that way? unhindered and is it not working in those other environments because we're blocking that and getting in the way of that and is that something that horsemen need to know i believe they do need to know that in fact it's not the discipline per se and you were right we have been effective in in many ways but look at the at the common threads there those horses that you described mm. had to solve problems mm. on their own Mm. Right. So they were given an internal locus of control versus being forced to do things. They became problem solvers, which indeed started, grew a whole forest of dendrites. Right. Yeah. You can't force a horse into the bull ring and you can't force a horse over a big blackthorn hedge. It just, you just can't, they're just not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They didn't check out because they, they had an internal sense of safety too. So something happened Mm. in, in their training that allowed them to because horses are constantly asking, am I safe? Am I mm-hmm. safe? Am I safe? If we can answer that question, then, then we can draw off their curiosity because you can't be curious if you're being threatened. So you, once they become curious and can get that dopamine hit, you know, then they seek it out. They become super learners. Yeah, that's exactly that. That's what I found is that the, the, the horses and it doesn't seem to matter what background they come out of. You know, we get horses that are all messed up in all kinds of ways because generally, you know, donation horses are given to you for a reason. Right. And we, we find that with this approach, their, their, their personalities emerge and they become these meta horses relatively quickly. I'd say within about 18 months or so. 
but dendrite, this is phenomenal. This is very interesting. So basically what you're, for my little brain to understand this, is it that I'm therefore, I'm, I'm perhaps receiving a horse whose dendrites have been snipped and clipped and pruned. And it's a bit like a forest of, of plantation of planted conifers. And then those trees are allowed to find their way within the brain. And then suddenly you have an ecosystem with all sorts of other little species in there and da, 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 which is, is now an actual forest. And what it needed was to be allowed to find its ecosystem. I, I love this. I love this analogy that you have of, you, you called it arborization. Was that, was it? Arborization. Oh. So treeization, arbor tree, right? Like an arbor, like branching off because these dendrites will branch off and then rub against other branches. So then now you have a neural network okay. that is really wide. And this should be really empowering to horse owners because you actually are responsible for the creation of dendrites or the pruning of dendrites of your horse. So in the That's right environment, those old dude ranch horses, they, they got mixed messages, never felt safe, had no way to escape external locus of control, their mouths pull down at the same time they're getting spurred, they check out and they become robotic. And if you were to take those brains and look at them under a microscope, you'd find just very sparse dendrites. They don't know how to solve a problem, you know, and, and actually their nervous systems have for the most part shut down. If you take those horses and you can reach a point where you're not going to get that good a return. You get an older horse that's constantly been traumatized. You know, you, you, you're still helping them. Mm. But, you know, if you can set up an environment where you answer those questions, yes, you're safe. Yes, you can explore. Yes, you can problem solve. Set it up for your horse to solve the problem. You can cross the stream by allowing your horse to put its head down so it has binocular vision. So it splashes in the pond a little bit um, so that it, it heads up to that pond and then finally puts its feet in and crosses and come back and do it again and again. Or you could take that horse, get them to the edge of the, the stream. When they bulk, you spur them and they jump across like a frog. That's not a water crossing. And you could say in both instances, that's a water crossing. But I guarantee you what happens in the horse's brain is much different in the horse that's been allowed to solve that problem. Absolutely. So, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, good horsemen, women have known that, yes, if you, let's, let's, let's take the water crossing analogy from that. Yes. If you allow the horse to do it in his time, if you perhaps bring in a mentor horse, if you do all the things that set the horse up for success partly because it's just safer for you and more efficient. And then that horse goes into that trailer, goes through that stream, does that new behavior, let's say, and then finds that it, it's safe. What's, I think that, that we, we know that there's a lot of good horsemen and women who would do that sort of thing somewhat instinctively because of their empathetic natures. But it's very, very useful for them to know why it works because this is always the thing when, when horseman is talking to horsemen or therapists to therapists and they want to say, well, I'm, I'm advocating here for a more empathetic approach. And someone just says, oh, you're just a soft hearted hippie. If you can say, well, actually, no, I just spoke to Dr. Steve and Dr. Steve told me about this thing called dendrites. And 
not dandruff, but dendrites. And, and these dendrites are important because if, if the horse hasn't got them or doesn't have enough of them, they can't make the decisions that will get you out of trouble, let alone them. And these dendrites have to arborize and come into contact with other dendrites and rub against each other and stimulate each other and create a problem-solving ecosystem. But it comes down to, that's something you can explain to people and they can get. That's fascinating. You're exactly right in that there are a number of very fine horsemen. I don't, didn't mean to just go back and just denigrate things that had happened in the past. And that this is an enlightened, you know, because there, there are wonderful horsemen and women that understand the how. They understand how to get this to happen. They just don't have the why. Absolutely. And, and, and if they have the why, then they can fine tune the how. Absolutely. And Absolutely. optimize it. And, and replicate it and show other people yeah, how to exactly. do it. Okay, so I, what I want to do here is I just want to dial back a moment. Tell us, what is the main difference? What are the main differences between the horse brain and the human brain? And what are the key ones that we need to know, those of us that are working with horses? Horses do not have an area of the brain and what we call prefrontal cortex that, that allows them to have abstract thought. So as far as we know, they're not planning out into the future. There aren't horses that say, well, I'm going to put aside this, this flake of hay until Tuesday and come back and eat it when I'm hungrier. Right. So they're not forming these contingency plans that we know of. But if they don't have abstract thought, what gets us in trouble is we do. So let me give you an example. It's just rampant in the horse world that people say that horse needs to be respectful. They're disrespectful. Well, that's an abstract concept. You know, the horse does not say, well, I'm going to put one over on my owner and then go back to the pasture and have a big laugh with all the other horses and what I've been able to, all the trouble I've been able to cause here. What actually happens is the horse is more a motor sensory creature. And so if they're stepping into our space because we're doing something to inadvertently allow them to do that, or we've actually trained them to do that without knowing it, but they're just simply being a horse and basing things on the signals that we are giving, giving off. And the reason that I'm so hung up on this idea of respect and disrespect is then it gives the human permission to punish the horse and discipline the horse, where I don't really know that that plays a big role in, in, in learning. Certainly that takes away the safety, et cetera. So I think in trying to understand that the horse is a motor sensory creature, and stop putting, using our big frontal lobe to put all this abstract thought in their mind, uh, it clouds our, our thinking. So the big difference is that frontal lobe. Otherwise, we're pretty similar. We each have six cortical layers in our, in our brains of cells. You know, we have, uh, well, actually, I take that back. In the horse brain, there's some, in some areas, they far exceed us. You know, their cerebellum, the structure that hangs to the back of the brain, is responsible for fine motor movement, timing, balance, sequencing. 
you know, they have these huge limbs and, you know, they're in a trot, just in a diagonal. If you understood what had to happen in the brain for that to occur, it's pretty fascinating stuff. So, the, and their olfactory bulbs for smell, which is a primitive sense, are enormous. If you, if you dissect out the brain, you'll find that they're enormous. And ours are like thin little shoestrings in comparison. So there are so many differences in the way they perceive the world. But the main difference is that we have more white matter and more full in our frontal lobes that allow us to think more abstractly. Let me ask you a question on this then, because I think anyone who lives with horses, you know, th 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 there's a difference, I think, between people who do horse, horses as a hobby or a sport and people who really, really live with horses. Not everyone who really, really lives with horses is nice to their horses, but let's assume that many of them are. I think that for, for a lot of us who live with our horses, we do observe behaviors, though, that look rather prefrontal cortex-like, for example, the sense of humor. And you say the horse doesn't plan to put one over on you, except when he seems to, and seems to enjoy the process and have a bit of a laugh about it. And when he seems to do it, it to his or her herdmates as well. If humor, for example, is perspective taking, that in order to do something because it's entertaining or funny, requires one to sort of see the situation from the outside, what human psychologists would call theory of mind. I'm not going to anthropomorphize that onto the horse, but nonetheless, definitely humor, definitely sometimes like, oh, I can, I can, I can mess with you a little bit here. And I have a, I have, for example, a carte blanche with my horses about messing with me because my horses have to be so good when I'm working with the clients that I have, like they've got to be so good that I give them what I, a lot of what I call crazy time where they can just go really nuts on sort of playgrounds that I build for them, where they go running around socially together. But also they can mess with me. When I'm riding them, I have a sort of amnesty thing on them, which is if you want to kind of run away with me a little bit, if you want to kind of throw a buck, if you want to express yourself in a way that is humorous, have at it. Because I ask you to be so good so much of the time totally this is your time it's totally fair enough they am i anthropomorphizing that they are exercising a sense of humor with me and with each other or are they actually and if they are if that's not coming from the prefrontal frontal cortex where's it coming from well, this is the fantastic million dollar question Cooper, because I've dissected out so many horse brains and I'm amazed at the number of convolutions and, and the folded gyri and salti, which means if you ironed out that brain, it would have a huge mass. And what we've done with all animals, we treat them as lower mammals. Why? Because we, we, we use the standard of human intelligence and we come up with human tasks to measure them by, mm -hmm. whereas they're they're fantastic creatures as horses that we underappreciate. So as an evidence-based person in my response, what I say is, well, so far science hasn't shown this. In fact, most, you know, um, literature would show that there isn't a prefrontal cortex in the horse. 
But, you know, I would, I would say that those are arbitrary boundaries and they change over time. So what I tell people is look at the function. Don't look at where that boundary lies and says, well, this is prefrontal cortex and the horse doesn't actually have one. Because I know over time with the sophisticated medical instruments that we now have that I have no doubt that we are going to find that the horse has, indeed has a prefrontal cortex and indeed is capable of much more than we've ever given the horse credit for. We just haven't had a good way of measuring it. And right. our measurement style has been anthropomorphic. Got it. Yes. Yeah, so, so yes, uh, could it be that there are parts of the horse brain that behave in a way like a prefrontal cortex that we just as yet can't identify, but clearly we can see that behavior must be coming from somewhere because the, the behavior seems ubiquitous to the species that they are, they are by nature, a very playful species. It's one of the great, wonderful things about horses, but yes, it, it, if it's not coming from prefrontal cortex, if, it, if it's not coming from a human type area of the brain where we would produce that from, oh, I'm going to play a joke on that person. That's planning, that's logic, that's reason, that's emotional regulation. Yes, that's prefrontal cortex. If the horse doesn't appear to have one, it's, fast, it's, it's intriguing to me what parts of the brain would be producing a similar type of response. Do you think something in the I limit? I think it's just or? a matter of where we arbitrarily have drawn a, a fence line and we've come up with a criteria. This is prefrontal cortex. Because we say mice have prefrontal cortex, but we say a horse doesn't. And I think, you know, if you go back 20 years ago when I was in school, they said, oh, the human brain reaches like age 25 and never, ever grows any more neurons. Right. Well, we know that that's now false. Yeah. You know, and oftentimes things we said 20 years ago almost seem ludicrous now, but we held it as if it were written in, in cement. I like to think of things much more out of the, the box. And I think you see the the behaviors you would associate with the prefrontal cortex, do I have to point in the brain where that prefrontal cortex is? Listen to this. There's a guy, Wilder Penfield. He was a Canadian neurosurgeon. And what he would do is he would stimulate electrically parts of people's brains. And he might say, okay, I'm going to go on this motor, the sensory strip here, and I'm just going to touch where, where the index finger is. Right. And he may touch there and that patient might say, well, that tingles my index finger. Another patient, exact same area, because stereotypically they can hone in right on that area, touches them there. They say, oh, I feel that in my wrist. And then yeah. somebody else might say, well, I felt that on, on my arm. So what we learn is that it's not like the textbooks. You look at a textbook and you got color-coded areas of brain. You know, somebody who's blind, for example, that's not just fallow back in the occipital lobe, you know, that occipital lobe will say, okay, since we're not receiving input from the visual system, let's, let's send some of that to auditory system, mm. you know? So we know that's, that sometimes like blind musicians like Stevie mm. Wonder or Ray Orbison, it appears that they may be using a lot more of their brain that they would be using for visual stimuli for auditory stimuli, which may give them perfect pitch or a better understanding of auditory because they're using so much more brain force. So if you look at your brain, because it's like a snowflake, your brain is not like my brain. 
It's based on all your experiences. Your brain is just an organ which interacts with the world and creates something that helps us survive. And horses, just because we're using a human measure to measure them, I think once we find functional MRI, we can do that. And for your listeners, that's a that's imaging where we can look at the brain in real time. If we can do that with a horse, and that's just down the road, then we'll be able to see some of these prefrontal behaviors and know exactly where that's coming from. And indeed, we may redraw the map and say, oh, well, here's, here's the horse's prefrontal lobe. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's possible to say maybe we haven't discovered it yet. Yeah, because, I mean, and when, when, when one observes horses in a very natural setting or wild horses, they clearly are making complex decisions about that involve some planning, like when they're going to change pastures, when they're going to go to water, when they're not going to go to water, being able to work around predator movements. They don't just blindly wander into them. They, they, they know more or less what the predator movements are and make decisions around it. But yes, where's it coming from? It's really interesting that you talk, talk about Penfield, right? There's a book I recently read, The Body Has a Mind of Its Own, about body mapping. <laughs> And one of the, one of the things that the authors of that book touched upon was that equestrians have a uniquely complex form of body mapping that they have to do because they have to make the entire horse a part of their body map, but the horse has to do the same thing to the rider. And this is why it's sort of a miracle that the thing can even happen. And then you've got these two completely different brains trying to meld, but, but it, yet it happens yet this miracle happens. If, if, if we know that there are these main differences between the horse and the human brain, what, what do you think is the main difference between, and then we, we, we talk about the brains being snowflakes, my brain's not your brain. If we can respect that there are these differences between the horse and the human brain, what are the main differences between the neurotypical and the autistic brain? And then we might need to know both of those things if we're going to then work with those populations with horses. First, we need to know if I have a somewhat neurotypical brain, I need to know that the horse's brain has these fundamental differences that can give me a roadmap here. Now I need to work with these humans that are like me and a little bit not like me. And then how do I put all three of us together in a triumvirate? Talk to us about the differences between the autistic brain and the neurotypical brain, if you, if you feel that they're awesome. Yeah. Well, one area that scientists looked at is, is Brodman's area 37. Brodman's area 37. Area 37. Now, Brodman was a, a neuroanatomist and he mapped out something like 53 brain areas and said, these areas uh, are responsible for these, these behaviors. We don't use it much anymore because now we found there must be about 350 different areas and it's more important how they're connected okay. than, than okay. the job that they necessarily do. And that, that involves these dendrites, long axons with white matter wrapping myelination that allow us to, to learn. There's some thought that this area 37 well, there's not thought about that because we call it the fusiform facial area. 
And when people in a functional MRI look at faces, that area lights up. Well, it doesn't seem to light up with people who are autistic. In fact, um, that area is used to interpret facial expression, social facial expression. And that doesn't seem to be happening with people who are autistic. And so for me, oftentimes, even people I know well, out of context, I can't, I can't put the pieces of their face together. I may see their eyes and their nose and, and things, but I can't put it together, let's say, as Rupert. But then I hear your voice and it's in context and pretty soon it all comes together. But I get this like deer in the headlights lost look, even with people I know sometimes where I can't put all of that together. And then that impedes my social interaction because I'm not picking up all those little nuances. You know, I bore the hell out of somebody and if everybody's yawning and, you know, uh, or somebody's feeling threatened, if it's only in terms of their facial expression, I may have trouble picking that up. But oddly enough, I'm in, I recognize patterns very easily. You know, I recognize patterns that I don't understand that other people aren't picking up. And so when I go out and interact with a horse, that horse is giving me all these patterns. You know, I'm seeing, you know, where the head is. I'm seeing where the jaw is. You know, I'm, I'm noticing how tight they are or how, you know, how wide their eye is. And so almost like in a snapshot, I pick that all up. And it, I've come to think that that's, that's my... um neurodivergence that that my brain sort of works that way and automatically sees patterns i think that's why i love nature and i'm often in a remote setting where i go out on hikes and i feel comfortable because i recognize all the patterns in in nature and it feels very at home like but you send me to a cocktail party and i am at a loss right so although i guess one could argue that a cocktail party is part of nature if it if humans are, are, are natural yeah let's 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 replace uh uh cocktail party with campfire but i guess at a campfire you'd have the sort of option of engaging directly in the banter and the small talk or your whole you know hanging back a bit and looking at the stars but feeling connected whereas at a cocktail party you're either doing the cut and thrust rapier you know fencing of wit and they, or you're not, and it's, it's one or the other. And, um, so you're either in or you're out. Whereas in a, in a, in a more naturalistic social setting, you could have that going on and people with neurodivergence being able to be part of it as much or as little as they wanted, perhaps. You know, um, there's so many, so many idiosyncrasies and so many things that in this neurodivergence and it's different for, for all of us, but that's why my wife is often saying, you know, are you just being an asshole or is this your, your, you know, your autism? Funnily so, enough, my mum, my, my mum, my mum, listen to me, Dr. Freud, my mum, my wife <laughs> says exactly the same thing to me, but I'm not autistic. <laughs> because I, I can be laser focused <laughs> mother, for hours, yet I'm easily distractible. So yeah. there's all these, you know, there's all these inconsistencies. But when you, your original question was about the, the horse. For, for me, where sensory overload can be a problem, mm. 
I like for my messages to be very clear. And so I'm always trying to open up an avenue and reduce the noise. I don't want sensory overload. So I need to reduce the noise so I can understand the signal. And so I, I interact with my horse that way. Am I bringing noise into our relationship? I have to be more clear in, in my communication with you so that we can connect. And I have to reduce the noise so I can understand what message you're sending back to me. And so it's this sensory uh, communication between both of us that resets both of our nervous systems. At least that's the way it works for me. Do you feel that because you do have trouble processing, at least processing quickly, the multifarious nuances of the human facial emotional thing that it then makes it easier for you to look at the emotional patterns in horses because they're not expressing it so much through the face like we do. It's not that they're not expressing it through the face. Of course, they are to some degree, but not to the insane degree that we do. Do you think that that makes it easier for you to observe the patterns? You know, that's a good question. And, and you know, some of this isn't even science related because I don't know if I can articulate necessarily the, the communication. It's almost you have to see it and say, okay, I see Steve with his horses and I, I have an idea of what, how they're communicating with, with each other because of how they're reacting. But I'll, I'll give you an example is that I insisted when I was seeing patients of going out into the waiting room and getting the patient so they're not aware that they're being, you know, assessed at that time. So their, their guard is down a little bit. And that I'd watch and they would stand up maybe slowly, maybe shuffle a little bit. Maybe they'd have reduced eye blink. I'd almost have that patient diagnosed before I ever reached the exam room. And it was almost a snapshot of understanding. And I didn't get that in our interaction with looking, you know, recognizing in their face. It was more like a whole pattern that came at me at, at once. And so it, it, it was just, it, it was an understanding that was immediate. Um, and with the horse, I don't know that I can point out, oh, it's, you know, it's a thrashing tail. It's the head up above the withers. It's more just an immediate snapshot that, and you get a comfort level when you know you're accurate, when you know that the horse knows and you know that you understand that, that horse, um, it, it's almost immediate, but indescribable if you're going to try to, for me to try to break it down into, into science. So I don't talk a lot about training the horse necessarily other than just setting up the, the best optimum environment for a brain to work in. And then I understand that my autistic brain is, is different than most neurotypicals. So I have to be careful that my esoteric experiences aren't so much different than my audiences that they don't quite grasp what I'm trying to get across. Do you think that people that are running therapeutic riding programs who obviously are going to have quite a lot of neurodivergent people there and a lot of people with autism, is there a, perhaps a, an untapped talent pool 
among these autists, particularly as they reach adulthood, if they spend enough time with the horses to come in as the trainers and maintainers of the horses that are doing this job, because the neurotypical people that are running these programs could then benefit from this good pattern recognition that a lot of these autistic people, once they've got good familiarity with the horse, could share with them and then bring them in less as clients and more as part of the team. Is that something? Wow, that's, looking that's, that's a very interesting idea. Yeah. And, you know, we would be giving credit for, for something versus having it be unexplained and then treating the person as if that talent wasn't worthwhile. But, you know, putting that to, to use, I look at things sometimes neurochemically. And you and I've had this discussion kind of, you know, we've touched on this before, but there are some scientists that wonder whether horses over time haven't developed more serotonin receptors to allow them to be more emotionally balanced so they can interact with us and survive in our environment. And so I don't know that, that the autistic person's interaction with a horse isn't neurochemically setting the, their situation where they're actually um, on a cellular level actually regulating each other's serotonin receptors, which creates an emotional balance between both animals. That certainly seems to be what in layman's terms would be the horse just seems to like them, right? You know, you often observe this. And for many of us, well, that's a good enough thing. But again, getting back to where we were before with dendrites and axons, it's really good to know why things work. So what you just touched on there, so let's say, for example, if domesticated mammals in general probably have learned to evolve their way into better serotonin production so that they can deal with these funky monkeys that have life or death power over them, i.e. us. And therefore, if the funky monkeys that then come into their purview, who seem more able to observe and interact with their patterns in a way that makes sense to that animal and therefore brings them to a better point of safety. If it's coming down to co-regulation of each other's serotonin, again, I think what's wonderful about that is it allows one to say, well, perhaps it works because of this. It's not just that the horse irrationally likes them. It's got this neurochemical component. So therefore, once again, we can regulate, we can replicate it. This is something one could perhaps begin to develop or explore in programs. Because one of the things I'm very interested in is, is, is getting away from the paradigm of I'm the service provider and you're the service user. You know, I'm the therapist and you're the, it's never like that. We know it's never like that. You know, I learned more about horses through working with my autistic son than I ever did before I started working with him. He opened up vast horizons of new knowledge for me 
also about the brain, blah, 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 blah. Complete two-way street. He completely made me understand about oxytocin and BDNF and other things, which I'd like to get into in a minute. But I do feel that we have a paradigm within mental health that is exactly the same as our paradigm that you were talking about with some of the less good things of horse training, which is a, basically a power dynamic. And although that's understandable and somewhat natural to our species, it behoves us to try to get beyond it. When you bring, when you make those neurochemical succinct, easily repeatable phrases like, could it be that their neuro, that, 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 that their um, serotonin levels are co-regulating for this reason and that this population of human and this population of horse have a good chemistry this way. People can understand that and it's useful. You know, there's a, a scientist, Jeffrey Gray at King's College in London. <clears throat> and um, he was looking at activation of the amygdala. And that's a, a structure in the brain that we've associated with fear. And remember earlier, I had talked about having to feel safe. The horse constantly asking, am I safe? You really can't learn. Even humans, if you think you're going to be beaten up by a gang member after class, then you certainly can't be focusing on your trigonometry homework. Yeah. So what he found was that those mammals that had lower serotonin levels had a more active amygdala. And those mammals with higher levels of serotonin had a less active. It dampened the activation of the amygdala. So it made us... It, it plays a chemical role in, in dampening down fear, thus allowing interaction between two. And this is more complicated than, than we look. This is sort of simplified, but if you think about it, it's always a, a neurochemical cocktail of some time, kind. That's how Martin Black and I look at it. And he says, you know, you're, you're actually a bartender when you're dealing with these horses because mm -hmm. If you have too much norepinephrine, then they can't get the dopamine because the norepinephrine will have them too sympathetically aroused, so they can't become curious, right? If you have too much oxytocin, then they're not going to want to be away from the herd because they're going to want to feel that huge dose of oxytocin where they feel safe and bonded. So you have to almost introduce a new chemical. Well, how about Let's go out for this trail ride and I'll give you some problems to solve and you'll get some big dopamine hits along the way, which will then, you know, counteract that withdrawal symptom of oxytocin. So it's always this neurochemical balance. And if we can find those ways to, to work with that system and mix the best cocktails, then we're going to have the best outcomes. I 100% agree. So for example, when we were trying to understand why first my son and then other kids were becoming verbal and communicative who were, who were severely autistic and severely uncommunicative on horses in collection, in soft collection, again and again and again and again and again, a certain number of neuroscientists pointed out an oxytocin connection there and also oxytocin helping with bringing down the amygdala response, the fight, flight, freeze response and the cortisol uh, stress hormone 
blocking the intellect. Okay. And then we had it explained to us that although most hormones are produced in relatively localized areas of the body, oxytocin, the communication hormone as well as the pleasure hormone, gets, will be produced in your gut, in all your other organs as well, make its way up to the pituitary gland and sing like a choir and get this even bigger effect because it, uh, for various reasons, our bodies want it. But that at the same time, because of this activation of the gut through the hip rocking, you're getting serotonin. And then at the, at the same time, you're getting dopamine, as you say, because that's, you're now problem solving as you go. Even if the problem solving is simply finding your balance, let alone actually an activity. And then of course there's endorphins kicking in. And, and, and so, yes, I totally agree with you. When we are working with horses now, and when we're working with people, and I'm not just talking autistic people, I'm talking with myself, I'm always looking exactly as you say, like a bartender to to dose myself on these neurochemicals, which I know my body will produce or will be produced in the horse's body or will be produced in, in the, in the client's body or the kid's body. You, however, mentioned a word that I don't know. So I'm going to ask you to repeat it. Neuro Oh, norepinephrine. Let's, let's, let's just spell that out for me. Cause I'm, I'm writing it down, down. N O R. N O R E P I N E P I N Norepin. Can you write it down? Nor N O R E P I N E E P I N E P H P H E R I N. Wow, that's a that's a doozy. That sounds like a a, a town in Thailand or something. You know, there's whales. Lay people norepinephrine. 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 Nor norepinephrine. No, I think I think I've written it down wrong. Can you do it? Sorry, my listeners, but please bear with us because this this is something we need. Can can you spell it out for me again, please? Dave? Yeah. N O R N O R E P I E P I P H P H E R I N E E R I N E nor epinephrine nor epinephrine yeah okay talk to us about that what is that yeah that plays a major role in the in the nervous system we need a small amount of norepinephrine to alert what it'll do it sensitizes neurons it sensitizes the amygdala it's a sensitizer so if we have a small what does that mean, we, what does that mean? We don't even know what that means. What it means, it, it makes neurons more active. Okay. And Turbo let's say I the need fuel. a small amount of norepinephrine so that I can pay attention. So my brain can say, hey, this is important. I better focus on this. But if I get too much, right, then it's going to turn into to cortisol and run that entire Surgery. Will it always turn into cortisol or could it equally turn into something better, something more pleasurable? Or will it always go to... If it's at low levels, it can turn into something more pleasurable. So let's say I have a low level of norepinephrine that's allowing me to pay attention to what you're telling me. You tell me something then that is so interesting, it creates the dopamine hit on my brain and actually takes a couple of neurons and 
and fastens them together to, to broaden my, my neural network, then I get a dopamine hit and it feels good. And the norepinephrine helped me focus my attention long enough because your brain is only made up of what you've ever paid attention to in your life. Mm. That's why your brain is so different than mine. It's what you okay. focus on and paid attention. And your norepinephrine helped you to do that. However, if I had too much norepinephrine in my system, it would sensitize the amygdala and I'd be worried and I'd be stressed and I would, I would come apart. And under that, that constant high dose of norepinephrine, actually it would shrink the window of what I would be able to tolerate. And so my nervous system would actually reset and I'd be hyper alert, worried all the time, anxious, filled with anxiety and flooded with norepinephrine. What, what creates and where it, what creates norepinephrine and where is it created in the body? Norepinephrine is created in an area called the locus ceruleus in the brainstem. The locus ceruleus is Latin for a blue area. Because that's what it looked like when they died in and, and, and looked at it. So I need some, but it quickly gets to the amygdala. It quickly gets to the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a structure related to memory. So I don't want to re- necessarily be sensitizing the amygdala and the hippocampus at the same time, because then I'm creating a fear memory. I'm creating a trauma, even a small trauma, but a trauma nonetheless. Okay. So how do we, how do we, what, what, what causes the norepinephrine to be produced? Like, is, is it movement-based? Sympathetic arousal. Yeah, but arousal, there's many, there's so many forms of arousal. And right. it's chicken and no, egg, right? So is the norepinephrine before the arousal or is the arousal the cause of the norepinephrine? Let's say I, I'm constantly in my system to have some degree of norepinephrine unless I'm asleep on my feet. So I give my horse, for example, and I take them out to, to teach them something. And I notice that their head starts to come up above the withers, that their eyes get wide. So I say, you know what? We're reaching a point where we're getting too much norepinephrine here. I'm going to let you reset your nervous system. So I step back. I pause. The horse's head comes down. They start to lick and chew. They start to feel more comfortable. Then we reapproach that. And each time we do that, we widen that window of tolerance so that even if I have norepinephrine on board, it's not overwhelming the system. But let's say I don't answer that question. My horse's head comes above the withers. The eyes get a little wide. I keep pressuring my horse. Their head now comes way up. I see these tendons tighten in their jaw. They start to look for a way to escape. So they're already starting to think fight or flight. And if I keep pressuring the horse, trying to teach them something in that state, they're now flooded with too much norepinephrine. I know it's starting to go to the amygdala. And I know that the next response if they're more threatened, is, is a f- default to fight or flight. Cortisol. So it's an art of learning how to set and reset the nervous system enough times so that the horse knows that they can come down the other side, find that pause, and relax before the next. It's almost like you, if you were on a diving board. If I let you walk out there, and then walk back. You have an internal locus of control. You sit on the edge of the diving board, dangle your feet over, and then you sit on the board and fall into the pool. 
and then eventually dive off, pretty soon you're doing great. And your window of tolerance is pretty wide. So you're, you're feeling really comfortable with that. You had some norepinephrine aboard that made you, well, I better pay attention. I don't want to fall off the board. I better pay attention. I don't want to just drop off the edge of the board and suck up a bunch of water. But what if I stood behind you and I kept pushing you and you start to dig your feet in? Now you're so sympathetically aroused, you're filled with norepinephrine. And then let's say I throw you in and you take in a bunch of water in your lungs and you get up and you're coughing. Now that whole situation has become traumatized so that standing on that diving board is a different experience the next day based on neurochemically what I've done to you because of what neurochemicals were at what level of arousal. Okay, so basically it sounds like you've just explained from a neuroscientist point of view, the concept of less is more and the concept of softly, softly catchy monkey. And although those are common sense things, because we observe that if you don't do them, things go wrong. Again, it's really helpful to be able to say to somebody, look, the reason why you don't want to push for that extra step in the training or the reason why you want to now leave the horse alone a little bit or the reason why you want to leave that kid alone a little bit now or the reason why you want to let them come to a concept as gradually as possible is that you're avoiding this norepinephrine thing which they need just enough of to pay attention and learn but if we push it over the edge we're going to fuck up everything we're trying to learn because cortisol is going to come in and just stomp on it like a big old boot. And then we'll have to start all over again from the beginning. This people can get, because I think, I think what's tricky is that, yeah, less is more and softly, softly catch your monkey and go gradually and all of these things. Yes, they're common sense. However, they're only common sense to people who have a sort of innate personality that way. And others who don't, who are very impatient. I've been very impatient in my younger life. You come to it by making a bunch of mistakes. However, if we're trying to help people not to have to make quite the same number of mistakes that I made, say, it's useful to have these terms because, because they're understandable. So norepinephrine. 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 I'm going to say it three times. Norepinephrine. 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 Now it's in my brain. Norepinephrine. And when we're done, go look it up and then you'll see the difference between that and adrenaline. It's one to put in your toolbox and, and, and be aware of. Is norepinephrine a, a, a hormone or is it a... Yes. It it, is a it's a hormone and a neurotransmitter, as many of these are. So therefore, it's also a protein. Would that be correct? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And in small doses, good. And in big doses, not so good, basically. Right. If I'm sensitizing your, your brain, I don't want to hypersensitize you. Right, right. Makes and sense. it's interesting that you brought up, if you, if you screw it up, you have to go back to the beginning. Yeah. If you screw it up, you can't get back to the beginning you were at before. Yeah. You know, you're actually two steps behind the beginning yeah. Yeah. when you come back at right, it. Because you've created trauma. I mean, th this I, I saw so often in the worst kind of behavioral approaches with autistic kids when my son was very young and these kids would just would get to a point where they were trying to climb through the wall 
or climb through the door or climb over the person. And you had exactly the same thing being said by the therapist that people would say about horses, they're being disrespectful, they're being this, they're being that. And say, like, no, man, they're just terrified. <laughs> they're just terrified. And I remember thinking, wow, as a horseman, if I was in a ramp pen with a horse and they were trying to climb out over the fucking fence to get out when I'm trying to do something, then presumably I should change something about what I'm doing or I'm going to get killed. Forget the horse. I'm going to get killed. But of course, because it's only a child and we're adults and we can overawe children with our greater physical strength and size, this doesn't come into the picture until the child gets big enough to, to physically hurt you. And then, of course, they resort to drugs to control that behavior. And so it, it, it seems to me that the, the, the problem is always about the idea of trying to control behavior, right? So Exactly. We, yeah. we want to be in charge of this because we feel uncomfortable. It's getting out of control. So I'm going to control. But one of the most stressful things that you can do to a horse is restrain them. Confinement. If you look at, at when most of the wrecks occur, mm. it's that yank around, I'm clamped onto the horse. I'm, you know, I'm forcing the horse. So restraint actually increases sympathetic arousal sure. instead of brings it back, back down again. I no, think no. one of the, the things most missing because we're egotistical, we want to make things happen, is that, that we don't use the pause enough in allowing the nervous system to reset. Uh, the brain is fantastic. It can replay things that happen well and make those neuronal connections. All we can do is interrupt those if we keep drilling and grinding away without allowing the brain to assimilate those in a good way. And sometimes the greatest gift to give our horse is space. 100%. You know, they're, they're, you're probably aware of the legendary Portuguese horse trainer from the 20th century, Nuno Oliveira. And one of his great quotes was, when your horse has made a really good try, dismount. Don't end the session. Smoke a cigarette down to its butt. Take all your attention away from the horse and allow him to simply pause. Then remount and go on. And I remember reading that and as an autism dad going, well, that makes sense actually. So I started doing that and I don't smoke. So what I do is let's say I'm training something. He was using the PF. So something that's complex where the horse has to give, you know, really hundred percent attention and hundred percent buy-in in order to pull everything in the brain body together. And so now, particularly when I'm training anything complex like that, I, I look for, I feel for a try, a good try. And then I do exactly, I dismount, but I don't smoke. So I, I do texts. I'll pull my phone out and I'll look in a different direction, but I hang with the horse at his shoulder and I might keep a hand on him or, or, or scratch him or whatever. But basically my attention has gone away and I answer a couple of emails. And actually my attention does go away because suddenly I do need to answer this email. And it, I, what I realize is it works for me too. It gets me out of that neuroepiprotein over aroused thing, because we know that we, when we train horses, we ourselves as funky monkeys can get a little bit intense about the whole thing. And I think the same is true, obviously, when we're working as in, in a therapeutic environment, we're so for the best of reasons, wanting to get a good result and deliver that sometimes we can 
push. And to be able to put it in those terms, neuroepiprofen, and say, let's try and avoid that. Let's allow pauses. So again, when you go to sleep at night, there's a neurochemical acetylcholine. You're how do we throw that? Boy, you can give me some real acetylcholine. Acetylcholine was a, a waitress, I think, at a diner that I used to, oh, to go to in Virginia. Acetylcholine. A C E A C E D Y T Y L T Y L C H O C L I N E C H O L I N E. I'm going to read it back to you. A C E T Y L C H O L I N E. Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. Okay. Acetylcholine. Tell me about this acetylcholine thing. What's this acetylcholine thing? You know, when you learn something, your brain just doesn't just pop up neurons in the old flare, right? As you sleep, you, you'll prune off and weaken synapses that aren't helpful to you as, you as you get better at doing something. And the acetylcholine almost goes in like a magic marker and say, or a highlighter. We're going to make a connection here. The best connection would be here. The best connection would be here. And then those neurons go and connect that way. So what happens is, if you recall when you first learned to ride a bicycle and the training wheels came off, you, you would get reach a point of diminishing returns trying to ride that day. And you think, I'm never going to learn this. But then you went to sleep at night and you had a pause and your brain got to replay this. And acetylcholine said, no, if you would have hooked this to this, and you would have changed this so your neural networks actually form new connections. The next day, somehow magically, you've gotten better. And all we can do is interrupt that process with the horse when they've gotten something and understand it. Our ego says, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Then they check out. And then we, then we reach diminishing returns. Now they do it worse. So we feel like we have to punish, we have to get after them even more to get back to where we were. When you got it, that's the time to pause and let the brain do its work. And especially overnight, because if you leave them in a good neurochemical state, the next day, they'll be twice as good. I guarantee you. It's but a if you push it, Go ahead. Sorry. If you push it and you, and you stress them out and you create a trauma, you can also wire this in a way you may not want. So that force may twice as bad the right. next day if you decided you're going to create a fight. Right. Neuroplasticity can be negative as well as positive, right? One can go in a good Absolutely. way. So are you saying that we produce more acetylcholine at night? At night, it does a, certain, a different job. We need acetylcholine. It helps us pay attention as well. It helps us focus because where your attention goes, this is a, a little phrase that neuroscientists use, where attention goes, Neuro, neuro connections grow. Okay. Thoughts become things, basically. Right. Exactly. And so, when you do that, you fire that neuron. And then if you fire it again and you got it right, it stimulates a myelin wrapping that then allows things to travel more efficiently without loss of information and faster. So 
as you rewire your brain in this fashion, there's a, a neuroimaging called diffusion tensor imaging. And you can look at the white matter. And let's say I saw a kid who was a piano protege. The areas of his brain that he uses to play the piano are going to be so puffy with white matter. He'll have layer after layer of that wrapping on there. This, this the wireization. The wrapping, it's, it's the insulation on the wire. the information highway. Right. That is more important in learning than necessarily the parts of the brain. So when we point and say, oh, look at, you know, that's the part that works the finger. It's better to say, this is a complex system. And it's the wiring and the information highway that's actually the key to the efficiency, to learning. Of, how, the efficiency of how the information is passed along the highway. Absolutely. And the more insulation it has, the more myelination it has, the more of the white matter it has insulating the wire, the smoother it's going to go. You got it. Okay. So th here's a question though. Do we, pr do we produce more as the acetylcholine? Acetylcholine. Do we? I'm going to do this in Texas accent. Kind of do we? We all produce. Do our asses produce more acetylcholine when we all when our asses are asleep at night, or do we produce an equal amount of it where, whether we're awake or asleep? Why? Why is the, the sleeping part of it so important? I think it has a different job to do at sleep, in, in sleep because in sleep we don't have all the outside distractions. Because interrupting our attention, acetylcholine has to help us with our attention, focusing it. But when we're asleep, we don't, we don't have that same demand. And so we can go and do our rewiring. That's when we're assimilating all this information. That's where some neuroscientists think our dreams are. Just things that we've taken in during the day that we're then assimilating in the, in the brain at night. So the acetylcholine, I can't say that there's more acetylcholine produced at night, but acetylcholine's job changes to okay. solidifying the wiring. So is acetylcholine at night where it becomes its, its meta effectiveness? That's what we call sleeping on it. Yes. Yeah. Basically, we want to go sleep with acetylcholine. Dude, we okay. want to have a... An affair with the we want to have an intimate relationship with the acetylcholine. Got it. Okay. So we want to pause. Because what happens if you don't sleep? Your attention goes out the window. Yeah. And if you, after a while, you get sleep deprived over a number of days, yeah. your attention span really shrinks. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, if you did it long enough, you'd probably start to hallucinate. And that's what happens with people that are sleep deprived for long periods of time where their bodies are just trying desperately to get to sleep. Okay, so norepinephrine. 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 Why can't I get it right? I'm going to try it again. Maybe, maybe a southern accent will help me. Norepinephrine. Norepinephrine. Y'all got some norepinephrine. I got some good norepinephrine right there, right there. Mm -mm. And so that, that's going that, to... That's going to stimulate... A little bit good, too much not good over into the red zone. So we want some of that for attention. 
And then we want some acetylcholine, acetylcholine to, to help us to then build the white matter, the, the, the mycelation, the, the, the insulation along the, the wires that, and if we sleep on it, um, if, if, if we stop before we go to a red zone and then allow a sleep cycle pause, then when we come back the next day, we've allowed, uh, <laughs> we've, we've reduced a lot of the noise. And so by, by right. getting, tearing off the, the, the synapses that we don't need by weakening them and strengthening others. Right. Then we, we actually bring a different brain to work the next day. Right. So what it often feels to me for myself, for my horses, and for a lot of the people I work with is that over time, when we do this, we effectively grow ourselves a new brain. You know, I am, I become a different person over a certain number of days, over a certain number of months, over a certain number of years. The horse certainly does the, you know, we get these horses that come in and start with, you know, effectively no fucking way. And then they go to, and then they go to, and then they go to, okay. And then they go to at your service. And we, we observe this process time and time again. And what I've generally put it down to through the explanation of neuroscience is BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, i.e. neuroplasticity, kicking in through moving and problem solving. That's how it's been explained to me. Are these two components, neuro, <laughs> nore, norepiprofen and norepinephrine, norepinephrine and acetylcholine, aspects of BDNF, they must also be proteins, right? To some degree, because BDNF is a protein. Are they aspects of brain-derived neurotrophic factor that, or are they things that aid yeah. positive Let brain-derived Okay, factor? not to get too far afield, but let's draw that all, that picture all together. Cortisol, we call that a uh, glucocorticoid, a glucocorticoid, right? Stress and hormone cortisol, have, right. So if we have too much glucocorticoid on board, we're stressed out. Yeah. Right. Conflict. But if, if we're resilient to stress, if we've been brought up in a loving environment, right, nurturing environment, we can create what's called glucocorticoid receptors. What these glucocorticoid receptors do is they'll take the glucocorticoid and mediate it so that it won't have that impact. So the more glucocorticoid receptors you have, the more resilient you are to stress. And we find like rat pups who lick their pups, those pups grow up feeling love and feel they have more glucocorticoid receptors, so they're more resistant to stress. So there's now a, a connection between the amount of glucocorticoid receptors and the amount of BDNF that you have in your, in your system. BDNF, we know that, that you can produce that by exercise and movement, right? But also you can optimize that by feeling safe. Okay. So environment has a big part of it and mammalian right. caregiving. So oxytocin must have a big part of it then because oxytocin the, plays the, the pups role being licked, they must be getting and oxytocin, right? In middle, you're starting to really put together the pieces that, that this truly is a cocktail that's very complicated 
that we have to keep measuring. So when people tell me, you know, well, dopamine does this and that explains everything. Well, that's just one of the things that you're taking out of your bar here and mixing together. And so Martin Black would tell me, the guy, Tom Doris, who was so effective with horses, Martin describes him as the master bartender, that he couldn't articulate what was going on, but he kept, he'd take those horses that were maybe docile and, and, and passive and bring up energy in them, not stress, but bring up energy and the, the opposite. Horses that seemed highly stressed, he could bring them down and make them feel comfortable. Yep. So there were things that he was doing to create a cocktail, regardless of where the horse was in this whole spectrum of behaviors. It, we all have neurochemicals in us and we all have brains and we may have nervous systems that are set here if you're an Arab and set here if you're a draft horse. But nonetheless, you can still work with this neurochemistry. Why then is this neurochemistry not taught in most therapeutic training modalities? And why is it not a part of horse training? Because when I say part of horse training, I mean, for example, I'm sitting here in Germany. And so things are quite regulated here. You can't just, for example, show up and say, I'm a dressage trainer or I'm a yeah, you'd have to set, show what your training was, what you did, da, 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 da. And it's all regulated by something called the FN, the Federation Nationale, that governs a little bit like the US Equestrian Federation, but more German. It has a whole system of teaching. No brain science. For horse or rider. The British Horse Society, the same thing. The USEF, the same thing. And that's before you go into getting trained to be a therapeutic riding instructor or something like that. Where we began this conversation, that you're trying to reach a fellow human being, well, that's the brain. You're trying to reach a horse, well, that's the brain. Yet this, all these things that we've covered in the last hour, they're not part of any mainstream training thing, equine or equine assisted or sport equine that I have come across, let alone teaching in schools. Why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. One is it creates a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance. If somebody's identity is tied to a method of training and we've been rigid and it passed down and, and you can't go outside this, this method of training because then you're in the enemy camp. So we've almost built these, these rigid camps and you get ostracized by your, your social group if you're now in, in another way of of thinking, but if, if my whole social identity is in the 20 years that I've been brought up in a system, right? And then I have to rethink that and let go of that. It's much easier to say, that's a bunch of baloney or that's too complicated. So that's one piece of it. Now, dopamine happens to be one neurochemical that people look at because dopamine underlies every study in, that's lead to learning. You have to be motivated to learn and you set things up so you'll be motivated to learn positive reinforcement, et cetera, et cetera. But why are all the other neurochemicals left, left out of this? When I talk to uh, university veterinary programs, 
uh, about this. They said, yeah, you know, I said, I'm reading research, you know, that shows, you know, that the same neurochemistry is working in humans that works in horses. They've got all the same stuff here. And they said, well, that's just too complicated for the lay public. You know, that's just, that's, that's out there. In fact, when I went to Scotland and I, I, I gave presentations to large veterinary groups, they get very little of that part of things in their schooling. This was all new stuff to them, even in the equine medical world. And basically it's been my mission to try to to translate this into lay terms and try to find uh, concepts and, and examples that are understandable to the lay person because I, I think this is important stuff. And you see it in the medical field. Let me give you an example. You know, with autism, you, you end up with a protocol that's in place, right? And we've always followed this protocol. And so, you know, you're, your child is going to be sent to, let's say, speech therapy and physical therapy. And that's, that's the way that this the prescription's written. And so everybody gets on the same page with that. And they've done it for 10 years. So that must be the way that we, we, we do this. And so, you know, it's easy to dismiss. You get cognitive dissonance and you dismiss this as out of the box or way out there, wacky stuff. Cognitive when, dissonance in layman's terms means... I don't quite get it, so I'm going to dismiss it. Right. Or, you know, it's threatening to the beliefs that I hold currently, okay. and I've got to change my worldview if I'm going to accept that. That's too hard for me to do. They don't do that consciously. That's too hard for me to do, so I'm going to stay right here with what I got. Mm. And, you know, there's nothing more rigid and traditional than, than horse training and horse camps. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that that now we're in a uh, a moment in history where the horse is once again changing its role with humans, at least in the West. So it's gone from transport to livestock to war to entertainment to sport. And now it's coming into therapy. It's not that it's completely lost those other functions either. They're still there. However, where, where people were saying maybe 10 or 20 years ago, we used to hear a lot of people saying, oh, the horse has now become irrelevant to modern life. It's just purely a recreational thing. And now I think that that shifted again. And the vast development of the equine-assisted universe because it's not just special needs anymore it's 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 anxiety it's people just wanting to understand it's team building it's people wanting to understand human interaction and metaphors and whether you get into should we anthropomorphize that or not is almost an irrelevant thing because we can only anthropomorphize because it's the only lens that, through which we can view and presumably that will get more and more you know developed and more and more nuanced blah 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 but nonetheless the horse is right there in this professional role with us again in a new way. And it seems that the neuroscience is at the absolute foundation of this, why it works, 
people might not know why it works, but as soon as the neuroscientists explain, they're like, oh, yes, I think I get that makes sense. Yet it's not, the neuroscience is not in the training protocols yet for, as you say, not for veterinary, not for sport. And interestingly, not much for the, the, the therapeutic end. We, we at Horseboy and, and MovementMath only have it in because we got curious about why it was working. And then we went and talked to a number of neuroscientists and we basically got the same answer from them all. So it allowed us to come up with a diagram that we could go back to them and say, are you basically saying that you've got this overdeveloped amygdala, you've got too much cortisol, you've got this overdeveloped uh, nervous system, they're firing of each other, you're getting into a vicious cycle with this. And now we can come along with some hip rocking and some oxytocin, and this is calming the nervous system and also create, switching off the amygdala, but also creating BDNF because they're balancing. And therefore we get to the prefrontal cortex and therefore, and they kind of looked at it. There were several kind of went, well, yeah, kind of. And we said, okay, well, this is very helpful for us because now, and, and what we found is that in no way has the layman had any trouble understanding this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some of, some of the terms, like I keep mispronouncing, um, norepinephrine, norepinephrine and I say the acetylcholine, acetylcholine. Okay, and it will take me some, some, some repetitions of that, but things like oxytocin and things like BDNF are relatively easy to say or Purkinje cells or some of the other stuff that we get into. And of course, a lot of this is just simply about get practicing and getting familiar. And we do know that scientists love their jargon and they love to come up with multi-syllable complicated words that are just frankly difficult to remember because a neuroscientist would have as much difficulty remembering something in another language in several syllables as, as this, it just happens to be their field. However, I do think that most people are really up for it. I think that most people are open to it. I think there's a real hunger for it. So you say that you're, and not to mention a need for it, you, you, you're going and you're giving, you mentioned coming back from Scotland and talking to groups of, of veterinary students there and so on. So you're clearly going out and about turning people onto this neuroscience. What, what's, your, what's your basic ABC that you go into your average lay audience with and say, These, this is the boom, boom, boom that you need to understand to make your shit go better. Hit us. What is it? Well, basically what I'll do is I'll take <clears throat> images because images are better than jargon. You know, and I'd stay away from the big words and, and if they're going to run across them in the literature and they want to search for them, like on Google Scholar or Science Direct, you know, I tell them where to go to also get information because, you know, the, there's so much pseudoscience out there in social media that they can get really pulled off. Basically what I'll do is, is we, we look at horses in certain different states. So a horse that's in a parasympathetic mode, a horse that's alert with some acetylcholine aboard, a horse that now has too much norepinephrine and they're looking for fight or flight, a horse that's been totally restrained, taken away fight or flight, that's now gone into freeze, which is a different response than just being parked and comfortable. And we talk about what's going on in those horses' brains. How did they get there? And then how can you create an environment that you'll recognize these things and, and set up environments where your horse can get there. 
And so what people leave is being able to better connect with their horses, have a better understanding and language of what's going on in their horse's brain. And this is most empowering. What I tell them is that you are going to be responsible for the amount of dendrites and neuronal connections in your horse's brain. You can create a special forces horse that's filled with dendrites and super smart, or you can pare them all down and just get a robotic kind of horse that you're not connected with. But you are, regardless of what you do, you're responsible for creating that brain because that horse lives with you and interacts with you. And I think just that message alone is, is one they take home. And I tell them, don't believe me, just ask your horse. Just go out and experiment because everybody's a scientist. You don't have to have a big name. Everything is data. Everything is experience and information. Go out there and try things with your horse and, and, and work with your horse. Your horse is an individual as well with its own makeup. And that's kind of the package I put together. So basically you're saying go create dendrites and axons. Yes. Are axons meetings of dendrites? An axon is the long nerve ending, but at the end of that will branch out all these, these dendrites. Okay. So the axon is the main branch, the dendrite, the dendrites are the Yeah. Tree. Okay. Got it. And um, so if a message comes in, it might come in through the dendrite into the axon. Got it. And pass got it on its way. And then, and then the, ax, the axon will then take it further into the, the nervous system that's received into the information, right. like the vagal nerve and those things. Okay. So go create a bunch of, of, of dendrites and axons. Create this forest of functional brain behavior in your self, in your horse, in your child, in your person that you're working with by doing a bunch of cool shit in a non-stressful way. I'll give you a real quick example. Let's say you have a horse that rears because somebody's restrained them, taken away fight or flight, sort of whipped at them, and all they're left with was fighting. Yeah. So then somebody else inherits this horse and says, that's a bad horse that'll get you killed. Let's put this horse down. Or you could approach it as this horse has been so overwhelmed with norepinephrine that what I have to do is one, make them feel safe, first of all. So I have to go back because the horse is now a victim of that neuronal connection that's now in place. They can't help it. Yeah. That's what the norepinephrine is just going to send information down that pathway to survive. What I have to do is show that horse it doesn't need to go take that pathway by creating good pathways. So they're getting more and more serotonin and balancing out. Once I get it to a certain level, then I can start to say, okay, now let's go get some dopamine. You're at a place where you can finally start to to get some dopamine. And then they get really, they learn to learn and they're looking for every opportunity to learn. Now I've got a horse that I'm out riding with. It's comfortable, calm, and looking at new things as opportunity. And that would have been a horse I would have put down if I just left them with that old connected network. And, that, and, and people who see that get scared. So then they feel like they have to provide some kind of punishment and you're really just reinforcing, creating more white matter on that dysfunctional pathway. Right. Um, so, okay. So let's go again. So let's take a, let's take our human or our horse, that human mm -hmm. could be us, that human could be 
the person that we're working with, if we're in an equine assisted context, the person, or it could be our riding student, it, and, and it can certainly be our horse because all of us who are going out into this environment together are taking a nervous system and a brain with us. And let's create as many dendrites and axons as we can and get those, hopefully those, those dendrites, those twigs to brush against each other to buy lots and lots of cool new stimuli. But let's be careful to do enough norepiprofen to get things stimulated, but not so much that we overstimulate. So let's do a bunch of pausing and let's use some serotonin-y, oxytocin -y things like having their friends along or older horses that can make them feel safe or empathetic touch or many of these that will create these chemicals. And then we can, when, they're, when they have learned something or are clearly learning something, Let's pause and go away and sleep on it with our, with our dear friend, um, acetylcholine, acetylcholine, so that in the course of that pause, long or short, those neural pathways can be established in, in the positive way. The BDNF, the brain derived neurotrophic factor can kick in, in a way that is lasting, not just in the moment. And we are in a positive progression. Is that more or less, sir? In a nutshell, that is, you hit the nail on the head. So if I were to come along, if I was to, from this conversation, produce a little diagram of that, I think I'm going to, I'm going to try, and I'm going to bring it back to you. And then you'll tell me if I've got it right or wrong, i.e. how to tweak it, and then we'll tweak it. I think that would be a useful thing for me as a guideline to then also when I'm working with my students and when I'm working with my, whoever I'm working with, to point to that diagram and say, well, look, Dr. Steve takes us through this. If we can be mindful of this process, we're respecting the brain science. And if you forget how to pronounce norepiprofen and acetylcholine, it's all right because you just know what to do in order to get them. You know, this is, this is exactly the kind of information that I'm always looking for. Because I think, you know, where, when, what, the thing that mystified me when I went to see the neuroscientist to get the explanations about why what we were doing was working was, I was like, well, why are you, why do I have to come and fucking find you and hunt you down like a wild coyote? Why isn't this information sort of out there? And they'd sort of say, well, honestly, rude people aren't really that interested. We're here doing our neuroscience stuff and we publish our stuff, but I'll give you an example at the university of Texas, you know, where we worked a bit with the autism lab and in the beginning bit with my son, because my ex-wife was a professor there and we just ran straight into a kind of nightmare of behaviorism. The, the, the neuroscientists were just a couple of meters away. And they had all the information that would have made that behavioral approach better. Yet those people were not talking to each other, just on a human basis. That set of academics were not talking to that set of academics. And that's where it became sort of siloed. And then one has to go out and actually seek the knowledge, even though that it's hiding in plain sight. But you're there coming along and letting us know, is this, uh, is this the basic one, two, three that you're taking people through, whether it's vet schools or horse training or... Yeah. And 
no matter what program you have, no matter what discipline you have, you know, you can say, this is the right way to do it, A, B, C, and D. You can come up with any program you want, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, whatever you use, clicker training, et cetera. The brain is going to process it in the brain's terms. So no matter what program you have, understanding how the brain processes, because the brain doesn't care what program you have, it wants to be able to best process the information. So setting up the environment that best allows brains to do that. And oftentimes in this busy world, merely slowing down enough to assimilate information gets you farther down the road than if you tried to force things to happen when the brain doesn't actually want to take it in that way. So I'm just writing my little diagram here. Okay. Yes. So we, we know that we don't need, if anything is overwhelmed, then it's going to be a disaster. This seems to be the, the neuroscience of horse sense, the neuroscience of common sense. What I like about it too, is it gets away from just the pure pleasure hormones thing, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, oxytocin, that we know we need all those. However, they're not the whole picture. We need, they need to be dosed in certain ways. And it seems like what you've told us here with the dendrites and axons to the norepiprofen, to the pausing, to the acetylcholine gives us a way of, as you say, being a bartender of being able to deliver those good things in a way that's appropriate for the situation, the context, the animal or the human that's in front of us or oneself in this particular moment. This is massively useful. How are people, how can people come on your courses? Tell us about this. How can they find you and how can they sign up to learn? Sure. They can go to my website, horsebrainscience.info, and there'll be a schedule of um, classes that I, I give. I also do a course called Equascience. That's sort of the horse-human relationship with a psychotherapist, Sarah Schlotty. Oh, yes. She's very good. Yeah. And people can find that at equiscience.com. Equiscience.com, all one word, yeah. Yeah. And you can be really hopeful about this because people told me when I first started to talk about this that that it was above and too complicated for the lay person. And what I found is exactly what you told me. People are hungry for this information. And I, my schedule is so busy that I'm traveling everywhere giving these, these presentations. So I think that indeed we're, we're in the midst of a paradigm shift. And, and a lot of these old rigid programs will have to change. Just because of the outcomes and what you see and the better results. Are you, are you writing a, a, like a neuroscience for dummies book? Uh, is, there, is, is there something <laughs> that's specific to the layman where this stuff, we can find this stuff and assimilate it in an easy way? In my presentations, that's pretty much what I, I try to do. I haven't, I thought of rewriting a book, but you know, people have gotten away from from reading, unfortunately, 
you know, it's a fast paced world. They want it on their phone. They want it in, in, in sound bites. And so I've had to find a different media to get the message across because I think I almost limit myself by, by writing a book. Yeah. I, I, th I think there's something in that or, or, or. He says it gets more complex. One has to do all of it, right? You got to write the book. You got to do the podcast. You got to do the website. You got to do the the app. You got to do that. What what I would be really interested in looking at is so we are, we are now, for example, in Ireland with Horseboy and Movement Method, sort of now going into the mainstream where we're getting government funding to bring this stuff in because they're just finding that the outcomes are good enough. It's it's, it's saving them money. It means that. For example, six foot four blokes with autism who act out violently and need three minders, each of which cost the government a hundred thousand a year, get reduced to one, you know, and, and they see that number and go, okay, well, we'll, we'll put, and as we train more and more people, you know, we do our little neuroscience bit, but I'm always thinking that, but there's more, there's more, there's more. It would be very good if we could bring you in. But it needs to go beyond that. I'm thinking also the Curatorium for Therapeutic Riding in Germany. They're, they're very open. And we should go present this to as many of these bodies as we can without trying to sell them anything with the sort of a, a basically take it or leave it. This will make it better. Don't take our word for it. But if you feel like going for it, here it is in, in whatever form, because I think this is some of the most valuable information I've, I've heard in years. And to the point where I always know when something is really useful, when I can draw a little diagram based on what an expert is saying, that means they're getting it across, right? You're not just going, oh, what was that word that they said? What was that thing? That your, your clarity of delivery is unusual, um, which means it's helpful, unusually helpful. Where do you want? Where do you want it to all go in the next five to 10 years? You're looking at the equine industry, you're looking at vets, but you're also looking at mental health. You yourself have autism. You're looking at all these kids who are coming into the system. Where do you want, how do you want this neuroscience to get assimilated? You know, I don't want to be sort of practicing outside of my scope because I don't think that that's just opinion and not really based on the evidence-based information that I know well. So with humans, most of my, my background was in the dementias and, and you know, deteriorating brain process, et cetera. So I don't have a clinical background in autism other than just being on the spectrum myself. So that's the only knowledge base I have in terms of, of, of therapies. You've yeah. got to understand how funny that sounds, because basically what you just said is, I've got no, I've got no clinical knowledge of autism and neuroscience other than the fact that I'm an autistic neuroscientist. You know, it, it sounds ridiculous, but you know, when you get up in front of a panel and they say, "How many books have you written on autism?" You know, and yeah. so that were the were the measure. So I think I I'm able to make the biggest input. You know, I would like to see when somebody rides a rodeo horse, for example, that that horse can come calmly into an arena and then know in, through the communication, I just dial up my nervous system 
but I'm still feeling safe. I'm still hunting for that dopamine. I run my pattern. I'm finished. The rider gets off. I lick and chew. Then I walk onto the trailer and I go home. That can happen. You don't have to yank the horse's mouth around. You don't have to spur the horse. In fact, most of the time, that horse is more worried about when the hammer's going to fall than they are about concentrating on what they need to, to do. And so I think our abuse of horses, and I, I call it abuse, has become normalized just because we see it so often. Mm-hmm. And I'd like us to have a different lens, one that, that's more, gives the horse a better deal. Yeah, and I, I'd say that, that that brutalization of humans uh, was normalized for the same reason. It was just one sword every day. You know, the, the school system I went through, we were beaten. We just were. Things are getting better. They, that's now illegal. But the harshness behind it, the impatience that what the Pink Floyd would call the dark sarcasm in the classroom, the, the, all the stuff that activates your amygdala anyway, these things happen. These things change only slowly, unless someone like a Dr. Steve comes along and says, well, actually, here's the neuroscience of it. So it's not a culture thing. It's not, are you kind or not kind? It's just, this is how the brain works. If you do it like this, it'll happen like that. If you do it like this, it'll happen like that. So you say you don't want to be outside of your area, but I think that anyone who's listening to this right now, let's say they're coming from a therapeutic riding context, will find everything that you said massively helpful and take those tools and add them to their toolbox. So I don't think you need to worry about that because it's, it's not, we're not talking about an academic world here. It's more the world of the practitioners. I think the world of the, the people who want to get the job done, want to get the job done. Well, what I do love about my job is that you know, it's, it's uh, evidence-based information. So, you know, it's not my opinion. Mm. So people could dismiss that. Well, that's Steve Peter's opinion. But if I say the heart pumps blood and somebody goes, well, that's just your opinion. I can say, well, no, actually that's a fact. And this is how it's supported. And this is how, how we know that indeed that is a fact. And that's not my opinion. And so yeah, my knowledge of brain functioning over three decades of working with with brains does put me in a place where I can say, no, that this is this is evidence based, and it's always a position of strength because I try not to go into realms where I'm relying on on my opinion. I'm I'm really relying on on fact. Okay, so okay. Yeah. We're, we're approaching the two hour mark here. And I think well, this is, what, what's really good about this is that, um, let's say I was listening to this and I, and I was making some notes again, okay, dendrites, axons, okay, go, there's activity. Let's get that norepiprofen too much, not good. Okay. So just enough for the beta, that's good. Then the pause and then the acetylcholine so that it, we can sleep on it and get those neural pathways going in a good way. This is really helpful. What else do we really need to know as a kind of a neuroscience bottom line about horse brain, human brain that, 
you need us to go away with that we shouldn't get off this chair without knowing what i would tell your listeners for the horse and the human is that your brain is constantly rewiring and wiring itself and so if you looked at it as though you're a neurological gardener and you have to create the environment to grow the biggest dendritic forest that you can grow. And you only do that by understanding the environment and understanding how to create a fertile ground in which that can occur for both the human and the horse. And that may be different for each human. They may need different nutrients. They may need different attention, et cetera, to produce that dendritic field. But we're all capable of wiring our brains, our horse and us. And so providing that in looking at yourself as the neuronal gardener. And if you are the neuronal gardener and, or forester, and you're creating this, this forest in the horse, in yourself, in your client, it sounds like the creation of this dendritic forest or garden comes down in many ways to play, or am I wrong? That's a perfect environment because then you're able to tolerate so much more in a safe environment. Yeah, and, and the result of play is huge dopamine hits and curiosity. And yeah, it's, it's a safe environment and movement is often involved. So that's a very creative way of, of uh, creating this, this dendritic force. Animals that aren't safe enough to play, that aren't comfortable in their environments that are isolated. And isolation is the second biggest stressor for horses. Restraint is one, isolation is another. They need contact. Nervous systems need other nervous systems to thrive. That's what so they're co-regulation, much right? Co-regulation is that? Yeah, yeah. But more than that, I mean, you're, you're, you're oxytocin deprived yeah. if you don't have interaction and touch with other animals. Okay. So, so one of the things which I often do when I'm going around doing dressage clinics, that's one of my other lives, right? Is I've learned now that when the horse comes in to the arena, snorting and fire breathing dragony, and that basically they just got off the trailer in this new place and they're all freaked out. What I've started to do now is say, actually chaps, let's just pull the saddle off and let him play. Let's let him play. If you feel that he can play safely with another horse, let's have him play with another horse. If you brought another horse with you, for example, and they know each other, if not, let's interact with the horse and we'll know when that horse is ready to receive information from us. But if we don't give him a bit of crazy time and a bit of fun and then a bit of exploration time, frankly, they're just not going to take in any information. It's just not worth it. And I took the, 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 the leap of saying this to people who were, you know, proper, proper Grand Prix riders and it, it made a massive difference. And what I realized was, you know, cause I, I went to a lot of horse seminars and so on. I had a lot of people, particularly from the Western USA saying, oh, well, you know, if you don't keep your horses in herds in big pastures, you're an asshole. And I was thinking, yeah, but unfortunately that's just shaming people who have no option but to keep their horses in 
suburban riding clubs or boarding stables where they have no choice because they're being run by somebody else who's doing it with the horses in boxes and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So they just go away feeling shit with no um, solution to their problems. So then I started thinking, okay, well, what's the solution? The solution is getting horses to play together in herds at the very least. So you open up the covered arena, do some free jumping, have them mill around, put, change the playground for them every couple of minutes, let them enjoy it. We found that this really worked well in those environments. You had to integrate them. Obviously, so they, you know, they, they were safe with each other, but that it came so much down, as you say, to social time and play, but that one couldn't go and say to people, ah, oh, you can't control your environment. So therefore, and, and, and the option of having a ranch in Montana or Colorado is not there for you. Therefore, you shouldn't keep horses at all. That just makes people sad and depressed and, and um, doesn't give them practical solutions. But what's really nice is if, if, if um, then they want to create this social time and crazy time for their horses and they go to the barn owner and the barn owner says, well, no, I, I don't want to do that. If they can produce the kind of neuroscience that you've just come up with and say, well, actually, this makes it safer for everybody. This makes it safer for your people who are mucking out the boxes. This makes it safer for you, the barn owner, because the horses have fewer accidents because they freak out less. Um, and they don't stand there kicking the walls or get their feet hung up in the rafters because they're all freaked out and rearing up in the box and all the stuff that happens in those environments. It, it seems to always come down to the neuroscience. If, so if you say you're a gardener trying to, or a forester trying to create the biggest dendritic forest that you can, I love that, in the most fertile soil that you can, Okay, if the dendritic pathways are coming through this expiration and play, how are we creating that soil? How are we creating the soil for those dendri dendrites to grow out of? Well, in that condition that you talked about, a stall, a box stall, even if it's made out of mahogany is a sensory deprivation box. Indeed. And we know any mammal put in that type of environment, especially a herd animal, you're going to be pruning back dendrites. That brain is going to weigh less than a brain that can interact with other horses. Okay. You could say, well, well, I can do that because of the confines of a small environment. I think in the future, because the research is so robust in this area, that it's just not healthy psychologically and emotionally to be isolating horses and putting them in stalls. You know, all those, those, the way that they cope with that, with, you know, wind sucking and cribbing, et cetera, are res the result of they lower their cortisol level. They're, they're not, they don't have, it's not that they don't have any purpose. They have a good purpose in helping the animal stay self-regulated emotionally. But, I think people are going to learn to landscape a little better and they're going to find that a track system, maybe even one acre of land. I've seen this in San Diego, small little outcropping with a little hillside. And then there's a track along the outside of the, the property where hay is placed in certain areas and somebody's put down some pea gravel for their hooves. Somebody else has created a little water hole that they can congregate at and I would argue that getting, when people say, well, my horse will get hurt with other horses, 
I would argue that that physical losing a little hide doesn't really weigh well with the psychological and emotional comfort that horses get in their, in their interaction. And in terms of brain growth, that soil needs to have some sort of uh, interaction. We all need interaction with each other. So we may have to be creative in how we do that, but just not addressing the issue and putting them yeah. uh, and isolating them, it isn't an answer. So, for, so, so prioritizing it as a prioritizing that social time um, and saying, okay, because we need these dendrites before we can think about anything at all, we've got to rejig our environment. So if we are indeed in a, in a, in a limited space, so the horses are, or you've just, the barn owner, there you are, you've got a stable and there are stores and that's just the environment that you've either bought or inherited or whatever, there it is. Can we then say, all right, what do we do to optimize this? How can we give the horses the maximum opportunity to go and socialize um, without it just feeling like a prison yard, right? So, so for example, if, if you put in those tracks that you're talking about and the horse goes back to the box, is that, be is that better than if the horse doesn't get that at all? Or is it that we should, if possible, well, they've learned them in that's an open where they get that. Oftentimes, if they learn where they, that's where they've gotten fed, that that's where they don't have to work, they may gravitate back to that. But we learned this lesson in, in zoos. When I was a child, we'd go to zoos and in small cages, small boxes, mm. they'd have animals. They'd pace, they'd bite at things, they never thrive. And once zoos became enlightened and the closer they could replicate a natural habitat, natural environment for that animal, then they hit on the, and so then it became monorails that came over the zoo and looked down yeah. on animals in a big field. And you may not have that much land, but I think it, it behooves us to be creative and understand the closer I can replicate a natural environment, the, the better my animal's going to thrive. Absolutely. You know, I'm thinking. I mean, those mustangs. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, sometimes we get egotistical that we have to teach the horse everything. But, you know, there are mustangs out in the wild that aren't just standing still saying, I hope some human comes along and teaches me to trot and teaches me how to find the water hole etc. You know, they're probably filled with, with dendrites because they have that, that environment. And you know, they have good hoof health and et cetera, et cetera, on and on. So I'm not saying, you know, let your horses all run free, but I am saying that, that from a brain standpoint and brain health and from a wellness standpoint, um, thinking about how can I create that fertile ground and that fertile ground being as close to a natural habitat as I can get? If they can forage, you know, that's much better than highly processed greens yeah. that just go right through them. Filling them full of sugar and sticking them in the stall is not good for a human or a horse. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the things which is interesting in that the, the, the urban environment of horse keeping 
warehouses, of course, were in stores. Um, what one forgot was that the horse was outside working all day, constantly moving, 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 often in conjunction with a herd because they, they were groups of them doing things together. They might be being driven in a team. They might be working in a cavalry regiment. They might be this, they might be that, but in general, and all sorts of human contact, constant, 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 constant. And then going back into a store after moving all day, just to kind of chill is very different to standing in a box for 23 hours, waiting for your owner, who's got a job and a family to come and ride you for one hour in the arena, get upset that you can't concentrate and then put you back in that isolation box again. And, and cavalry schools, you know, which again, would always have the horses in the boxes until they went on campaign. And then of course, when they went on campaign, they were in the field. So I think what, what, what's happened is we've lost the context of, of, of these things. And we, I see it almost less as a, as a problem of the way we keep horses as the way in which we're trying to make horses conform to a modern paradigm of human life that horse human interaction wasn't really ever created for. Um, and then, and but then I find it quite intriguing. How do we find solutions to that problem? For example, group play in the covered arena. It, it, yeah, but it's interesting. I, I, I now do this as a, as a, uh, as a prerequisite for any of my clients in the stable where we're based out of in Germany, because they are indeed in boxes, but they're actually out in the fields in the day, but that's how it's done. So I say to all my people, get them playing together, playing together, playing together. And we set it up, I set them up into groups and anyone who won't do this, I say, well, like, I can't really have you as a client because I just know that I'm going to be dealing with an unhappy horse that, but as soon as you're ready to integrate your horse into that herd for some playtime, some crazy time, come back and talk to me. I do understand that you have a job. I do understand that you have a baby. I do understand that you'll have time constraints. Um, but as you say, let's replicate as closely as we can to the original. Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. Martin Black and I, we do a cult starting every year in October. And we don't keep a horse in isolation. Four horses are started together uh, yeah, in the round. Yeah, and so that actually creates the sense of safety. There's movement together, et cetera. And, and it more than pays off because you work with one and then you get a pause because you have to work with the other. So the, the pause is, is built into the whole process. And yet you can use the herd and all that serotonin and oxytocin in your favor. And it, it truly makes a difference. Yeah, plus the visual learning. I mean, they watch each other, right? They learn from each other. So much of what's forgotten with horses, as you know, is where did, where did horse domestication and training start? Starts in Central Asia. With who? With tribes. Well, what's a tribe? A tribe is a group of people out there living in tents, constantly interacting as clans and extended families. What are horses? Herd animals, constantly interacting in clans. And, and, and you put those two things together and you get equestrian culture. And then it's pretty functional because it's, it, it's obeying the rules of, of, of the fact that we're both herd animals really effectively. And now suddenly with the cult of the individual, we've broken that and we wonder why we're running into some problems, but 
when you come along and explain it, particularly in the, in the, even if we just bring the whole thing back to dendrites and say fewer dendrites, more problems for you in your horse, more dendrites, better everything's going to go. Which one do you want? Shit or good? Then let's go for some dendrites. You know, <laughs> that's helpful. Weeds or flower. Yeah. You know, Rupert, I think you and I in conversation could probably spend an entire day balancing these things back and forth. So maybe you'll invite me and we'll try this again. I would love uh, to. In the well, more than that, ones. what I'd like to do is I'm going to throw this open to the listeners. Okay, listeners, hello. You're going to have questions for Dr. Steve. Email them to me. I'm going to ask Dr. Steve to come back on and we're going to answer those questions. Because then those questions are going to, and if you are coming from a suburban horse environment where you have limited space, please don't think that you're not part of this conversation. Ask Dr. Steve for the, the solutions to get those dendrites going in your horses. Let's, let's get this conversation moving. Let's discuss it. Let's be creative together. Let's figure these things out. So yeah, I'd invite your listeners. Everybody's included. The umbrella of brain functioning is huge. It, it, it exceeds all disciplines and all environments. You know, we're talking about brains, so everybody's invited. All right. So listen, let's just go through the resources again. Tell us the titles of your books so that people will want, they'll want those. What, what, what should they be ordering from Amazon if they want to read your stuff? Okay, you can go to Amazon and you can read Evidence-Based Horsemanship. That's the book that Martin Black and I wrote. And we purposely spent a lot of time trying to make it available or make it accessible to as many people as possible. There's jargon in there, but there's also a glossary. It's not a huge academic tome. It's about 100 pages. And there are a lot of illustrations. So Evidence-Based Horsemanship. You can get that on Amazon. You can come to, you can go to my website, horsebrainscience.info. You can also look up equiscience.com and look at the courses that Sarah Schulte and I are doing together. And they'll give you a pretty good start. Fantastic. All right. We're all going to go off and do that. And then we're going to ask you to come back on in a little while and answer the questions that the dendrites in our brain yeah. are going to come up with having been stimulated today. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Steve, for coming on. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed our discussion. Massively, massively. I'm going to bed. I'm going to go take my, my paws now and go bed down with a seed. Yeah, let the acetylcholine do its work now. Get, yeah, the acetylcholine. So have your glass of wine, relax, and let your brain now do what it needs to do. Get a little white matter going. All right. I will, I, I will see you on the, on the next one. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Be well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include 
easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.